so energetic for a Sunday, my God. It must be all this space that we have this year. Yeah. How about this space? Do you like this hotel? Yeah. Oh God, I'm so happy. Just the, the, you know, to be able to move around and breathe and not have the sun burning me and artist alley. It's just, I, I, I like this. This is, I think that this hotel has been good for our mental health as a con. <laughs> So, my name is Chan Scott Frazier, and we're here to talk about creativity and mental health. Um, normally I have a cool presentation for my panels, but this one, I, every time I try to make one, I, the questions that come are always so different that I just it's difficult for me to do this, so we're going to do this on the fly. Um, so, basically the things I'm going to talk about are a little bit about some basic stuff, and then we'll talk a little bit about if you are a writer or a creator or a, you know whatever you do that make characters or you use something creatively that deals with people with mental health issues. And then the last part we'll talk a little bit about how to take care of yourself if you are a creator who are an artist or live with an artist who ha um, who has stuff going on. You can we can talk a little bit about some techniques for that if you are interested. Um, also, you are welcome to ask any question at any time. I, it would be kind of nice if we kept it on topic and we weren't talking about like economics or something. Um, but yeah, so yeah, feel free. Okay, so one of the things I really that's really important to talk about in here is stigma. Stigma is negative feelings or negative things that are attributed to people with mental illness. So when you say when you say, when you hear someone say, I have depression, um, a lot of people, there's, there's this instant image that we conjure up of a person who has depression. What do they look like? What do they talk like? What do they do? This kind of stuff. That is, it's both stereotyping and to some degree, it's stigma. Like, depression has changed so much, our, 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 um, our reactions to depression has changed so much over the years that now when you say, you know, when you say, I'm dealing with depression, it's a lot different than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Whereas now, there's, there, um, we have some things like, for instance, borderline personality disorder has a very strong stigma attached to it. Um, because people with borderline personality disorder tend to have really, they tend to have really um, uh, strong emotions and they form attachments and break attachments really quickly. So they're very tumultuous relationships. Um, because of that, People look at that and say, oh my gosh, those people are crazy. Oh my gosh, you know, they're too much to handle. So there's this stigma that gets attached to that. Um, there's a stigma that's a, a very strong stigma that's attached to schizophrenia and other thought disorders. When you say that person has schizophrenia, there's all this stuff, that these images that come up in the mind about that. I mean, old stuff like where there was a, there were schizophrenia and... Um, Dissociative identity disorder, multiple personality disorder, where that was basically thought to be the same thing, when in reality, it's completely different. Um, so that's what stigma is. So one of the most important things as a creator, as a person who talks about this, is to not build stigma, to not increase it, but to decrease it. One of the ways that we do that is through, so that when you're writing your characters, do research, you know. Learn about them. Learn about this, these processes. Learn about how it works in you. You know, learn about you know if you're dealing with one of these issues, like, let's say uh, OCD. Learn about that. You know, learn about how other people experience it and stuff. So when you express it in your in your comic or your play or your novel or whatever you happen to be making, it 
educates people rather than paint somebody with a brush, if that makes sense. So the second thing I want to talk about is diagnosis. Um, obviously a big deal that we talk about a lot. Oh, you know, I really should have mentioned this. Um, in addition to having, I worked in the anime industry for 14 years in Japan, and I've done a lot of animation and consulting and stuff like that. In addition to that, I have a degree in human services and mental health counseling from Metro, yay Metro. Um, I have a private practice, I work as a counselor. I'm sorry? Roadrunners. Yes. <laughs> um, I have a um, private practice where I see individual clients. Um, I've had my practice for uh, five years now. Um, and my legs. Um, so I, I'm not just kind of talking off the top of my head. I do have expertise in this. So back to diagnosis. A diagnosis is a very informed, hopefully a very informed opinion. Um, a diagnosis, we look at what we have, the, the, di the diagnostical, <laughs> Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Um, we are on version 5 of that. Uh, it, is, it is colloquially known as the DSM. The DSM is basically a book that has lists of various uh, disorders and various syndromes and various uh, things that a, a syndrome, basically, and a, and a disorder is a cluster of symptoms that um, when we diagnose something, we do so so it allows us to treat it easier. So for instance, uh, let's take bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder, um, the diagnostic criteria say that you have to have an up, um, a manic episode, which is, and that can be of varying intensity. Um, then you have a down, which is a depressive episode. And the important thing for the diagnosis is that it goes back up and it comes back down, it goes back up and it comes back down. That's the cycle. Those are the two poles of, of, the, of moods. Okay, so hence bipolar. Um, so you have this, it's last, and one of the other criteria is this has lasted over six months. So it's basically, it's, it's a chronic issue, not a not a, a, an acute, a specific issue caused by something else. Um, this is not, it, 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 one of the criteria is that it is not just depression. It is, it, well, I, I hate to say just depression. It is not purely depression. Um, it is not purely mania. The most one of the most important diagnostic criteria, and the one that so many people overlook, especially online, is the last of the criteria is it must affect your life or their life in a very negative way. So if someone has uh, checking behaviors, like in other words, they um, they always like twice a day they have to go through the house and check and make sure all the doors are locked and all the windows are locked in order for them to feel safe. We could some people would say that is OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, but it's, they do it twice a day, and if they're not thinking about it, if it doesn't add stress, if it's not a point of concern, then it's not a disorder. It's, it's a personality thing, right? It's, it's something that's just part of you. So for instance, if you, have, if you have mood swings, if you have kind of strong up moods and strong down moods, but it's not, it doesn't cycle, it's not bipolar disorder. If it doesn't, neg if it doesn't really negatively affect your life, it's obviously an issue, but it's not necessarily a disorder. So when you look online and you see somebody say, oh, they're trying to make this in some normal behavior into a disorder, no, no, they're not. Um, because 
it has to really strongly negatively affect. So, you know, that's, yeah. <laughs> so, diagnosis also, because it is an informed opinion, sometimes opinions are wrong, sometimes opinions are incomplete. We diagnose, a diagnosis is, sometimes it's like, okay, we think this person has bipolar disorder because of this and this and this. So if we diagnose them with this, it gives us two benefits. Number one, insurance. Insurance in the United States, they want to see these numbers. They want to see this thing in order to pay for it. You know, it is what it is. It's part of our medical care. So without, without a diagnosis of, say, major depressive disorder or uh, dysthymia or cyclothymia or whatever, then you know uh, your insurance company is going to say, well, we're not going to give you any money for this. We're not going to cover this. The second is, it allows us to. Uh, it's a kind of a form of shorthand that allows us to um, apply different therapeutic techniques. So we can say, okay, this person to come back to borderline personality disorder. There's a, a whole therapy that was designed to work with people with that with that disorder called uh, dialectical behavior therapy. So if I have someone come in and, and say, oh, I've been diagnosed with, with um, borderline personality disorder, well, first I'll check that out. I'll see if I agree with that. And if I do, I'll say, okay, let's start with DBT. It's a good baseline. Maybe they'll respond. Most people respond to it, but sometimes people don't. So we go with a different therapy. And then we try a different therapy. We keep working until we find something that works. And my therapeutic style is I work with whatever works for you. If you, if I, I prefer cognitive behavior therapy, but if it doesn't work for you, okay, we'll do something else. You know, some therapists only do cognitive behavior therapy. Some therapists specialize in like um, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and some have like um, other credentials. Like for instance, with a PTSD specialty, maybe you study um, was it I move it. Uh, Eye yeah, movement, the sensitization. Yeah, yeah EMDR. Yeah. <laughs> Eye movement, the sensitization. Reprocessing, I believe it's something. It has something an like R. Because <laughs> <laughs> you are reprocessing. Your yeah, trauma is it reprocessing? Okay. I, I, I just. I always forget, the, I just know the acronym, well I don't say I just know the acronyms, but I forget, you know, you say the acronym so much. EMDR is a technique that's used with people with um, PTSD. Um, it works with your eyes and sound and different things, and it's really, it's actually very fascinating. We don't completely understand how it works. So the other thing about diagnosis is sometimes our, we're very hopeful with our treatment. Sometimes we kind of guessing a little bit. Um, like medication, for instance. Medication works different with everybody. Everybody in this room, like if, if we gave you a Zoloft pill, everyone would react differently to that. Um, so it's not, it's, there's, no, there's no diagnosis that is carved in stone. Okay, one of the other things about diagnosis, and one of the reasons I'm very careful about the way I do this, um, if somebody needs it for insurance, okay, I'll lay a diagnosis down, but if they don't need it, if there's no compelling reason why I need to name that, I sometimes don't. Because people, if I, if I say, I think you have bipolar disorder, the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to go home, they're going to look it up on the internet. Okay, cool. But there's so much information. When they, when they start with, you know, NAMI and, you know, the, 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 you know, the CDC, whatever, the government, and then the, you know, uh, Medline and all these, you know, PubMed, etc. When you look at those, that's one thing. But then when you go down and you look at, 
you know, Jane's website and here's, uh, take the quiz and see if you have bipolar disorder, then you're getting into trouble because you're talking about amateurs, you're talking about people who've read things written by people who've read things written by people who've read them. And it's this chain, so you end up with somewhat questionable information down there on the bottom. Now, of course, there's lots of sites that talk about, where people talk about their individual experiences as a creator and also as a creator with these issues, that can be invaluable to see how other people work, how other people do their thing. When my clients um, start medication, I do not prescribe because I'm not a doctor, but when they come in and they start medications from a doctor or a psych nurse or what have you, I suggest that they go to crazymeds.us. Crazymeds.us has a lot of different, effectively what's user reports for different medications. So let's say the doctor prescribes you Lamictal. So you go on this website and you look up Lamictal and there's people who say, wow, this has worked amazingly for me. It started working right away. Some people say, oh, maybe it took a month for this to start to work for me and it's kind of mild. Um, this particular medication, um, it's kind of weird. There are people who do not react at, almost at all to the generics. Who knows why? But you'll get it. So if they take the brand name, which is very expensive, it's one thing, but then they take the generic and it only has 30% efficacy. It's only that 30% there for them. So you get to read about that kind of stuff. The nice thing about that is that if you look at what people actually experience, then you don't need to make stuff up. Well, granted, if you have the fantasy story or a science fiction story or something and, and they have, you know, um, xenobipolar disorder or something like that, then okay. But if we're basing this on something that's real, it's very important that we get it right in my opinion. So, again, that diagnosis. Once I lay a diagnosis on them, then some people, once they look at the internet, then they start, they do what we call labeling. And labeling is where you take that and you become that diagnosis. Because, for there's a variety of reasons, one of them is if we fit the diagnosis, then we will have a cure for it, or we will have a treatment for it, which is, again, not really the case. So, um, if you say to somebody, we think you have bipolar disorder, and they're at, they actually have a depressive, just primarily depressive issue, they'll find a way to try to be mad. They'll try to work that in. And the medications for that and the therapies for that are different. If you have a person who has bipolar disorder, there's a number of medications you cannot give them that you would give to a person with, with uh, depression, with just, with just pure depression, because it can trigger all sorts of stuff. Um, again, so that's important, but if they be, work to become that um, and fit those so that they can be treated, then we have a problem. Um, I'm, not saying that, uh, I'm not saying that they're making these things up, but they're starting to recognize these things in their normal behavior. Um, labeling is tough. Once somebody gets in that space, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to get out. Um, and also, the longer somebody's had a diagnosis, the more they become firm in it. And the more, I mean, I've, ha I've seen people argue with their therapist. The therapist will say, you know, um, I, it looks like you're, you're dealing with this. No, I have this. Well, when were you diagnosed with that? 1982. You know, okay, well, we, we understand things now in a different way than we did in 1982 or, you know, 1991 or what have you. Um, especially things like autism. We understand, we have such a much greater understanding of autism and thought disorders and anxiety than we did in the 80s and 90s, just, you know, 20 years, 10 years. So, 
labeling on stuff. Um, any questions? Yes, in the back over here. Um, I was just curious, you mentioned autism and like, the way that we conceptualize um, mm -hmm. diagnoses and things in general um, now as opposed to you know, how long ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering kind of how you feel about the fact that the DSM-5 DSM took out um, well, okay. I have this, when it comes to autism, I am not a specialist in it. I am aware of it, of course, I went through school. I've worked to some degree with people with mild autism, but it's, it is, uh, autism really, even the diagnosis requires a, a team. You need people who know what they are doing and know how these situations work. And I'm, I will freely admit that that is not me. I, I will not, um, give someone a diagnosis on the spectrum, the, I will refer them to somebody who really knows what they're doing. However, to answer your question, um, we have what they call an information cascade. And an information cascade is, once we've defined something, you get, like say, a researcher or a doctor or whatever who figures out something. Okay, we have this syndrome or disorder. Then under that, you have people who look at that, they read the papers, they talk to, they go to the seminars and stuff, they hear about this, and they say, oh, yeah, that kind of fits some of my clients. Then that becomes a shorthand. Then people who work under them, and it just keeps, as you, as you go down this cascade, eventually you end up with people who really don't know what they're talking about, who put this rubber stamp of um, diagnosis on somebody, and that's where the trouble becomes. In the 90s, we, it was bipolar disorder. Um, we had an information cascade dealing with Asperger's. Did you have something to say in the back? I just had a question. I'm sorry? I had a question. Yes. Um, what, is there like a psychological reason that people label and self-diagnose? There's a number of reasons. There's a number of reasons. Um, one is people want to be treated. They want to get rid of this issue. And by doing so, by some, some uh, people often believe by naming that demon, they can defeat it or they can own it. Um, again, that's not that's not necessarily the case, you know. Um, sometimes it is. Sometimes if you've gone for a long time and you, you were undiagnosed with something, like, again, let's use bipolar disorder as an example. Um, when you finally recognize that you have it or you're diagnosed with it, it can change your life. You know, you can say, oh, wow, that's what that is. Or, for instance, um, uh, uh, ADD or ADHD is another one. You know, there's a, you know, when you have that, you know, the world is kind of very stormy, but then when you start to treat it through therapy, through medications, or however you treat it, we can change things. Um, the other thing is that by labeling, sometimes the people around us, um, they are the ones who really want the label. They want to know what's, what's wrong with you. They want to know, and they want to be able to go, this is the thing, this is the problem, so that they can put their finger on it. Um, so sometimes we label because of that. Yeah, there's any number of reasons. Sometimes people label because it's, you know, they they want to have reasons for the I don't know reasons for taking medication. There's I mean that's that gets into kind of a different thing. Yes. Just to add on to that, it's also it also can be how you communicate any sort of identity or how you yeah, experience that's true. the world to other people. So for instance, I I I openly call myself gay and identify as gay, but. If I see a beautiful woman, I might be interested in kissing her, besides that now. But I just consider myself gay, not bi, and such, because it's something simpler to be able to say. It's something, it's my interpretation of the word, whereas you might say, oh, you 
you're interested in that, then you're not gay, you're bisexual, etc. It's all about trying to communicate with other people. That, that's a pretty good point, but and that actually brings up a very valid, a value, a very valid point in that these are these disorders and these diagnoses are not your identity. They are people. They become some for some people. They do become part of their identity, and you hear that through their phrasing. I am bipolar. He is schizophrenic. She's a borderline. When we do that, we def we're defining somebody through that. He has bipolar disorder. She suffers from schizophrenia. I, I say suffer from, even though that's really not. That that's kind of that that taps into my spirituality, you know. But um, yeah, it's just you know, if you bring it into your, if you fold these things into your identity, they will stick and they will stick hard. Um, and this is something I work with my clients to not necessarily re completely remove that from their identity, but to not define themselves through it. I'm so glad you brought up that point. Uh, let's go over here. I had a, um, I had a, uh, it adds on well to their points. Um, I, I was able to deal with my depression better mm -hmm. once I accepted it, mm -hmm. because I, I found that you know my brain is very resistant to treatment, mm -hmm. and that's okay now because I know it's there. But the difficult part I've had in, in communicating that depression to other people, how do you explain depression to somebody who's never had it because I was talking to someone once and they said, oh, I get sad sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, no, this, that's... This, this, isn't just, yeah, this isn't just sad. It's, yeah. it's beyond that. You Depression know. to me is um, I can't, the lifestyle. Yeah, but. you know, one of the ways that I, when I'm talking with people, sometimes this comes up in like a panel like this, is that I, I frame, sometimes it's easiest to frame it with other chronic conditions like asthma. Or, you know, I mean, I hate to say things like kidney disease, but sometimes it really is, you know. Um, or, you know, some, uh, something that comes and goes that's episodic, you know, dengue fever or whatever you want to say. And that, you know, I'll tell you what, bipolar disorder can be way more destructive than dengue fever can, you know, physically, even physically, um, if you don't take care of it. So, yeah, that's a, you know, that that's one of these things. That's kind of one of the reasons we're talking about this is so let's say let's say I'm writing a novel and I want to talk about that how do I explore that do I explore it in like first person from the character's point of view and just say god I feel like hell today or this is or do I do I express it in a way that they're doing something and then I go to third person so all the people around them I'm like you know they're like oh that person is suffering so we're looking at it from both points of view or are they? If, if, if there are, or or do they not care about treatment? Do they say, "I don't want that. I'm going to live as who I am"? And do we explore how they do that, which can be very interesting. Um, the if we're doing it graphically, like let's say I'm drawing a comic about it or making an animation about it, well, do you know what are my symbols for that? What are what's my symbol for depression? Um, how do I, do, if I have two pages and I'm talking about it, what, do I use color to describe this? Do I use black and white? Do I use, um, you know, it's interesting. What, what is it to you? You know, feel around the edges of it. Do a lot of studies. And by studies, I'm not, 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 not like reading, but paint it. Draw it. Uh, I do this with my clients. I'm like, draw your depression. Draw the feelings that you have for your father. Or, or just take some to go and buy the cheapest set of kids' watercolor <laughs> paints that you can, 
and just you can do it with your you can finger paint this you can do however you can make clay sculpture what you know um, if you take polymer clay what does your anxiety look like this is a fantastic fantastic tool fantastic therapy um, by doing that you process it you work on it, you process it, you feel the edges of it, and it allows you to express it a little bit differently, um, or a little bit clearer. I think that, and I think that as creators with these, with these uh, things, I think that's one of the most valuable things we can do is communicate like that. You had a question in the back? Oh, um, is it bad if you feel like you were diagnosed incorrectly, or you suspect you might have been? Second opinion. Get yeah. a second opinion. Always. Yeah. Well, like, well, like I said, a, a diagnosis is a very informed opinion, and sometimes these opinions, the, sometimes a diagnosis is made with incomplete information, or sometimes people change. You know, sometimes people who are who, when they're younger, they have um, like bipolar disorder type two, where the <coughs> mania is milder, and as they get older, the manic episode gets stronger and stronger, so they become a type one. Um, sometimes, sometimes people's anxiety changes shape as they as they get older, and sometimes, especially when you get mul when you get comorbidity, when you have multiple things going on, like like if you let's say you um, have a social anxiety disorder, and then you're in a car accident and you have PTSD because of that, those can really work tightly together, and they can influence each other in ways that are unexpected. That and sometimes, sometimes you don't even recognize it from uh, six months to a year or something. So when you go to your therapist, you don't that information doesn't come up. So the the diagnosis is not complete, or you get a misdiagnosis. And honestly, like everything else, uh, sometimes you get people who just aren't too great at making those diagnoses. Sometimes they wanna, you know, they there's a. a well, I'm not going to pick on a certain field of mental health, but there's a certain field of mental health where you can go and get medications for these things. And the average, the average, oh, let's say psychiatry, okay. The average, <laughs> the average psychiatrist um, appointment time is 15 minutes. That is not a lot of time. Even if you do that once a week, that's not a lot of time to really delve into somebody and get a, you know, a, a complex, a diagnosis of a complex thing. Like, let's say there was like a personality disorder cluster, which are becoming more common. That is, you know, that's going to take some time to unwind that. Did you have something to say? Oh, I was thinking of a... Yeah, sure. Um, tying it in with what you were talking about, you know, how I read a book a while ago concerning creativity and the shadow. And um, I read a lot of Union stuff. And since we talked about creativity, I found it really applicable to my life. But a lot of people don't face the shadow aspect of themselves. And I wonder how you deal with that in your work and how you think it applies to creativity. Oh, in my, in my own work, um, I have a couple different ways of doing it. Um, I have a couple, all but one of them are healthy. <laughs> um, let's be real, you know, that's, and sometimes, there have been times in the past where I've gone to that unhealthy because I wanted to, I wanted to look into the face of that and be able to turn around and express it. Um, really not necessarily the best idea, but 
sometimes that's you know what we do. That's our process. I'm, not, I'm definitely not recommending it, but I'm not saying never do it either. Um, what I do is, um, for most of my life, I just didn't know what to do. I, I lived in the storm. I lived in it, and I was like, it was just part of who I am. And um, I have bipolar disorder, and boy, that hypomania. I was a type two for a long time, and that hypomania. It, it, for creativity, we talk a lot. You hear a lot about, you know. Um, Mental illness and creativity are interrelated, and for the most part, they're really not um, by themselves. It's interesting to explore. It's a different viewpoint, which is interesting. So that gives, I mean, that's creative unto itself. But as for stimulating creativity, really the only one that does that is, is the um, on bipolar disorder type 2, the hypomania. Um, there's a book called The Hypomanic Edge about how to use that in business. Um, basically, it's that it's this drive of oh, I'm not I I'm awake for three days. With me, it was you know I'm gonna move to Japan and work in the anime industry. Yeah, so I did. Um, I'm gonna found a charity and use all my voice actor friends to do vocals for these albums that we're gonna make and we're gonna do tours and stuff. So we did. And you know, hypomania has. You know, it's paid off for me in, in some ways, in some ways not, because, um, oh, you know what, I need this and this and this money, woo, money, it'll come back. You know, so, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I'm not going to say that it was a complete edge, but for me, I learned to harness that, and that was really beneficial for me. That and hyperfocus, the combination of those two, just allowed me to, it allowed me to learn things really, really, really fast, and that helped me a lot. Years later, when I started to, when I got, when I started to um, address it, when I realized how, you know, destructive it was in my life, you know, my relationships look like, you know, a trail of wreckage that cover the globe. Um, and I said, I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to spill my acid onto people around me. So I, and another step was going on, of course, too, that kind of spurred me into this. So I went into therapy, and I started to learn more about this. And I take a medication that is like, suddenly it was like a silver bullet. It was brilliant for me. Um, so... With that, with the combination of that, especially the therapy, I, explore, I started to explore my own thoughts. Like, how do I think? Um, cognitive behavior therapy is based on the idea that our thought comes up and that is filtered through our experiences, our ideas, our beliefs, our baggage, and that is the response. That's the emotion. That, that, that's the emotion that we'll end up with. So, for instance, if I... If, um, let's say, somebody walked in that door and started just screaming at the top of their lungs. Okay, today I'm tired, right? And my idea is I want to, I want to talk with you guys, I want to finish this panel, after this panel I'm done with the day, I gotta go home, then I gotta come back. So I have all this kind of stuff in my mind, and I would be unwilling to put up with that at this moment. So it's like, you are invading my space, you're invading these people's space, get the hell out of the room. Last night, when I was not sober, 
<laughs> if that person would come in and I'm like, yeah, okay, ha, 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 that's really funny, why don't you move on or have a seat or whatever. My response is different because of the space I'm in, my, my behaviors, my, my mood, my spot. So if my, if my automatic response, my automatic thought is I'm not good enough, um, so, and I'm at work and I get a kind of, I get, a, I get like a B plus review from my boss. If my automatic thoughts are I'm not good enough, that looks like an F. That is, I'm like, oh my God, what did I do wrong? Oh my God, what did I, this, you, we all know students, or we all were students, who, if we didn't get an A, oh my God, what the hell is wrong with us? And if you look at that objectively, that's kind of, that's intense, that's too much, that's over the top. But when we're in that, because I have to excel, I have to do this right, I must complete this, or I am not good, or I'm an idiot. If I don't finish this, what the hell is wrong with me? If, if my costume, if I don't win the costume contest, then I'm not good enough. You know, that kind of stuff, that's where we start to get into, the, and then we're stressed, we have anxiety, we get anxiety, we get stressed out, we don't want to talk with people, we have this chain of behaviors that comes up. And in and then wrapped around those behaviors is, is more behaviors are coping mechanisms. So, for instance, I get that bad. I get that bad job review. I'm really not good enough. I'm an idiot. I'm gonna lose my job. Oh my God! What am I doing? I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I won't have any money. I don't know how I'm gonna pay my rent. I go home and what do I do? I eat a, oh, the whole pint of ice cream. I watch the show that depresses me. I listen to Neil Young. Whatever you know. <laughs> That's me. Honestly, when I become su when I become super depressed, I get much more interested in listening to Neil Young. Of all and so we have these coping mechanisms that we've created. Now let's say, let's say, let's go back to our, our story. Let's say I'm drawing a comic about a person and suddenly they're, they have, um, oh my, let's say borderline personality disorder. And suddenly that's gone. Suddenly it is magically changed or there's some kind of scientific thing and it just removes that from their life. Okay? All of that wall that we've built, all of those behaviors are still there. It doesn't take that with it. It doesn't take the way we eat with it. It doesn't take the way we sleep. It doesn't take, you know, when we, you know, we yell at our significant other. It doesn't take any of that stuff with it. That's why therapy is beneficial. Because let, let's say we had a magic pill, or even, even if you, let's say you, you've been dealing with depression for most of your life or since you were a teen, you get a medication that works for you, and you feel good. You know, like, like the, let's uh, pick Wellbutrin. You take Wellbutrin, and that there's that two weeks of everything is awesome that Wellbutrin brings you. Um, when that happens, that doesn't change the people around you because they have reactions to you. That doesn't change what how you drink. If you if you're like you know when you have a bad day, you go home, and you you drink, or you go up to the bar and you drink. Okay, it's part of what you do. This magic change didn't take that away. So the next time you have, the next time some dude cuts you off hard on the road, your response is to light a cigarette. That didn't take that away. So, again, that's why, this is interesting to explore in stories. Because you're not just getting rid of that core chunk, there's layers on top of that. Like your, the relationships that you have, this is intimately wrapped inside them. Yes.
Um, well, speaking of creating that, that core of a character, um, how do you create a character in writing or any medium, uh, any narrative medium, that suffers from a mental health disorder, mm -hmm. but doesn't appear broken? Because okay. it's so often used to portray characters that are wrong or something's wrong with them, and that's not necessarily. No, just different. You know, you can portray them as different. Um, one of the big ways that's done is the people around them reacting to them. If the people around, number one, if you show them suffering, if you show them like, oh, they're crushed all the time, and you show through their body language, oh, let's say a comic, for instance. In your comic, if you show them like, you know, slumped over and darkness around them, then the, your reader is going to say, okay, this is, you know, something terrible is going on. But if they're living their, their day and sometimes stuff gets kind of intense and all, okay. The people's, the, the reactions of the people around them will be critical in that time. Because if the people around them treat them like they're broken, then the reader's going to treat them like they're broken. If the people around them treat them like they're people with, you know, some stuff going on, then that's the way the reader's going to look at them. So if you if you make something so if if they're if they do ugly things, and the people around them say, okay, well you know that's this is part of who you are. This is what happens. Let's see what we can do to to fix this to help you. And they say, oh my gosh, that was kind of awful. And they work to change that. Then then you have a, almost a redemption story. So that helps. Anything that anything that allows us to connect to the characters in a way that we could maybe do this, or we could see our friends or family or whatever doing this, and we can still like them because of it, I think that's really the key to that. Thank you. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah. So, when, as a creator with mental health issues, one of the most important things that I have learned is that if I don't take care of me, I can't create. If I am, if I decided, you know what, this week I'm not going to take my meds, you know, for whatever reason, I decided to be non-compliant, and my meds were, and if my meds were very important to me, then my response maybe is to maybe I want to lay around and watch TV because I'm really depressed. If I'm laying around watching TV, I'm not writing my book, I'm not making my costume, I'm not drawing. So, and then I think about that, I'm like, I'm not drawing. Oh, man. And it just gets this crush more and more and more crush. So I say, well, what do I do that, that helps me? Um, I like to walk. I like to go walking outside. I live by the Highland Canal. Um, so what I do is I go out and I walk and I process. I chew and chew and chew in my mind. Sometimes I listen to music and I chew. And then when I get back, I've had my processing, I've had my fresh air, I feel, I've had exercise. So I feel better for that physically, which improves my mood. Um, sometimes, sometimes I do yoga to keep, you know, the more I stretch my body, the less tight my shoulders are. The less tight my shoulders are, the, the less the less Tylenol I have to take, you know, all these cascades, you know. Um, sometimes I need to talk to somebody. Sometimes I talk to a friend. Sometimes I talk to my therapist. Sometimes I... Uh, I do all sorts of stuff. I do thought records. So thought records are a cognitive behavior therapy tool. Um, it's basically, I, when, some, when I'm overwhelmed, I can say, okay, column A. Column A is what happened. Uh, my best friend said something that was really rude to me. 
column B is, what you know, how did I feel about this? I was angry. I felt frustrated. I felt betrayed. I felt, uh, you know, that um, I'm not going to get the kind of attention I want. I'm not going to get the kind of love I want. So, and then I, then I look at these thoughts and I say, in, in the next column, I say, which of these is true? Which of these is valid? I'm not going to get that attention. No, she's had a bad day. Okay. So, um, I'm not worthy. I'm not a good person. Well, no, it was one day, and then she just said this annoying thing, you know. Maybe I'll unfollow her on Facebook, you know, <laughs> or whatever. So, I dispute this. I dispute these things, and I say, what if this is real? What if this is my own processing? And then... Through this, I look at my automatic thoughts. What you know? What did I immediately think? What, what's my baggage? My baggage is I'm not good enough. My baggage is I'm not. Uh, I should be a better friend. Blah 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 blah. Whatever that is. And then I I come. I look through that and I go, okay. How can I next time? If this same situation happened, what would I do next time? Well, I would I would say, you know, she's having a bad day. Or I would say to her, are you okay? Rather than being confrontational. Or I would just be like, okay, I'll just let you have your space. And then the last column is to reevaluate where you are in that space. I'm like, I feel better now. You know, so I do that. I do thought records, or I do, you know, whatever. I do breathing, um, that kind of stuff. By doing these kind of things, it allows me more time and more space to be creative. Um, if I, there were times when, you know, like when I was living in Japan, and I would just get so. Oh my god. I get so depressed, I couldn't work. I wouldn't want to go to work. I'd shove myself into the studio, but I'd sit there and I'd stare at the screen and I would be so resistant. And then that would attach itself in my mind like, I hate this show. This show hurts. Working on this show is awful. And then I would just, I would continue to make it worse. Self-fulfilling prophecy. I would make it worse for myself. Um, but, what I do, like when I come to a con, one of the, the things I do the night before is I'm like, this is one good, this is going to be one of the best cons I've ever been to. It's going to be an amazing weekend. My goals are going to be met. Like here, I have a table in Artist Alley, so I'm making some money. I'm like, I'm going to make my goal. I'm going to make my cash goal. I'm going to make my, I'm going to do my panels. Everyone's going to like my. I'm not, I'm not being unrealistic. But I'm saying, like, I think I'm going to get some decent feedback from my panels, whether it's positive or negative. I frame it this way, and then I, you know, and then I, me, I forget about it. But then when I come into the weekend, I already have that in my mind. So when situations come up, I'm like, this is a great weekend. This is going to be a great weekend. I'm like, okay. You know, there have been times when I've gone to cons, and I'm like, oh my god, I don't want to go, or oh, I hate these people, or, you know, who run the con, or whatever, whatever. And it, it turned into a nightmare, you know, and things didn't work out. And it's not me, and it was, it's my framing that makes that difference a lot of times. And granted, sometimes, sometimes we get in this space where, you know, physically, we're, it's just difficult, or we're in the middle of trauma, or something's going on, and we, all we can do is accept that and wait until the storm passes. Sometimes that's the best possible thing you can do. This has been a Blood Alcohol Content Network production. For more information, visit www.bacnpodcast.com. Your home for almost bacon, 
and Banjo!